0: So here's a question for you to consider this morning to get things started. I I don't want you to say it out loud, but here's a question I want you to consider, and that is, why do bridesmaids and groomsmen stand on stage next to the bride and groom during the wedding ceremony? Just think about it. Why do you think that is? You don't have to say it out loud. But why is that? Last weekend, my family was at a wedding. Uh, One of Stephanie's cousins was getting married, and she actually asked Stephanie to sing at the wedding. We were very thrilled to attend and so happy to see her cousin meet and marry such a wonderful Christian young man. Well, during the exchanging of the vows, as is custom, the pastor led the groom to recite his vows first. And like most people on their wedding day, uh, there are a few moments where the groom had to repeat himself because he kind of stumbled over some of the words, right? I don't know if you remember your wedding day, if that maybe happened to you. Because it does. It does take some thought, does it not, to, to listen carefully to what the pastor says and then recite everything slowly and clearly, right? Well, then it came time for the bride to recite her vows, You know what? She she did precisely that. Every time the pastor said, repeat after me, she would listen very carefully, take a deep breath, and then say her vows clearly and slowly, just drinking in and absorbing every moment. Well, about halfway into her vows, during, during one of those moments when she took a deep breath, in order to recite her vows, out of the blue, one of the groomsmen fell flat on his face. He had passed out. And when he hit the ground, he landed on his chin and his whole body began to shake. Immediately, the other groomsmen bent down to tend him and they called out those famous words, Is there a Doctor in the house. And thankfully, there was. Several of the groomsmen lifted the gentleman up and took him off the platform where the doctor was able to examine him. Thankfully, the groomsmen, this guy, he regained consciousness, and a few minutes later, he was able to walk out of the sanctuary on his own strength, Or then someone drove him and took him to a nearby hospital. The latest report is... That he broke his jaw and will need to have it wired shut for several months. Can you imagine? Now let me ask you: if you were the one officiating the wedding, what would you have done next? You can see this is a question I was going through my mind, right? We you know what the officiating pastor did, and I really, he did a wonderful job. Once the young man had left the sanctuary, he was you know, escorted out and taken to the hospital. The pastor then, he told everyone what had happened, and then he prayed for the young man. And I, and I really appreciate his prayer because he not only prayed that the young man would heal and be well, but he also prayed that the young man wouldn't be embarrassed. I thought that was very thoughtful of him. And then after the prayer the pastor continued with the wedding ceremony. Now, have you ever seen something like that before? Any of you? You know, sadly, it's not that uncommon. You see, there are certain actions you need to take in order to stand properly, aren't there? Especially when you're standing at a wedding, perhaps the most important thing being what? Do not Uh, You guys know this. You guys know this, right? And, And it almost seems odd, doesn't it? Odd in this way. That you would have to give intentional thought about standing up. That I would actually have to take the time to think about how to stand. Yet the truth is, whether we acknowledge it or not, standing up does require thought. And you know what? Sometimes it even requires courage. You see, it's one thing to stand up at a wedding, but you know what's even harder than that? Standing up in opposition... To a group of people, especially when you're the only one. That's hard. Yet that is exactly what Christians are called to do sometimes. This Mother Day, Mother's Day, our passage of study is going to be Daniel chapter three. And what we're going to learn from this text is simply this truth, which is illustrated powerfully, and that is standing for Christ can mean standing alone. This, I want to argue, is the main point of our text this morning, standing for Christ as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, following his commands, doing what he calls us to do as his people, standing for Christ can mean, at times, standing alone. Remember the question we started with? That, that, that poor guy passed out and fell down during the wedding. But have you ever wondered why, in the first place, why is it that he... The other groomsmen and the other bridesmaids are standing there in the first place. Why is that? You know why they stand? They stand to signify their allegiance to that couple. Christian, in allegiance to Christ, there will be times when you must stand and oftentimes stand alone. Friend, please hear me. If if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you're here this morning and and you don't profess faith in Jesus Christ, for both audiences, you need to hear, if anyone wants to follow, faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ, put their trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins, and then follow Him, friend, please hear me. There will come times, not might, there will come times where you will have to stand alone. Stand alone. If you want to obey his commands, there will be times when you must stand and go against the flow. And you know what? That can be hard. It can be hard to be made fun of or marginalized because you choose to obey Jesus and his good word. His good word concerning all of life. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning this Mother's Day morning, is how can we do that? How can, as God's people, how can we stand in faithfulness to our allegiance to Jesus? How can we not, if pass out, if you will, and collapse under the pressure? Say it this way: What is needed? Christians to be faithful to God in an increasingly secular society? Well, I believe Daniel chapter 3 provides us with some much-needed wisdom for today and how we can navigate the challenges. So if you haven't already, please turn there with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. That's page 739 in that paperback Bible in the seat in front of you. As you're turning there, let me give you the context. In the overall storyline of the Bible, chronologically, Daniel takes place after 2 Samuel. You know, we've been in 2 Samuel for a long time. The book of Daniel chronologically takes place after that. Daniel was written when Israel was experiencing the brokenness and pain of having life in exile. So Israel at this time, they were aliens living far away from their home, Jerusalem. Well, in Daniel 2, the king at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, he had a dream that greatly troubled him. So this is what he did. He called all his wise men, and this is what he told them to do. He said, tell me the dream I had and tell me what it meant. And if you can't do that, I'm going to kill you. Great guy, Right? Well, guess what? Do you think any of his wise men could do that? No. no. So this created a problem, a rather urgent problem, right? So Daniel, who was part of that that group there, he decided to pray. And guess what? God answered Daniel's prayer. God revealed to Daniel both the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And you know what that was? Nebuchadnezzar had a vision. His dream was a vision. Of a huge statue that represented all the kingdoms of the earth. And on the top of the statue was a golden head. And that golden head represented King Nebuchadnezzar. But that's not all that was in his dream. Also, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a stone, a stone that was not cut with human hands. And this stone represented the kingdom of God. And you know what this stone did in the dream? It came and it smashed the giant statue. Not only that, the stone also grew and grew until it filled the entire earth. You see, the dream Nebuchadnezzar had was a vision of the majesty and the greatness of the kingdom of God. So so he has this dream where he sees this huge statue with a golden head that represents him and the stone that represents the kingdom of God comes and smashes it. Well, on the heels of this dream, guess what Nebuchadnezzar decides to do next? If you had a dream where you had a huge statue and your head was on the top and then it got smashed by a rock, what would you do the next day? You know what Nebuchadnezzar does? Let's find out. Look with me here in Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and here we learn the first thing that you must do to stand for Christ, and that's this faith, and that is Express allegiance to him. If you want to stand for Christ, there must come a moment where you actually express, demonstrate your allegiance to Christ. So follow along with me. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. We read this (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. And it's breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So he has a dream about this giant statue with him at the head being smashed. So what does he decide to do? Build it. (laughs) Now, you're probably wondering how tall is it. Uh, Based on biblical measurements, this statue would have been around 90 feet tall. Okay, and it's, it's a golden statue. But there's something else significant that we need to identify here in verse one, and that is the location where he puts this giant statue. Where does he say he puts it? The plane of what? As several commentators have pointed out and actually have encouraged us, if we're reading our Bibles carefully, we'll realize that that's the same location where the Tower of Babel was built. And as we're about to see, just as the Tower of Babel sought to unite the people of the earth in opposition against God, so too that's Nebuchadnezzar's goal with this golden statue, in opposition to God and in devotion to him and his statue. Now verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you notice... Who set up the image? <laughs> the, the text is going out of its way to let us know that, right, that it's set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the hero proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down in worship, the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you see it? What an eerie, eerie image, this Texas painting, this cacophony of sound. Consider all the instruments. And those with a musical ear would realize some of those instruments really don't seem to, to blend well together. So you have this eerie cacophony of sound, and then everyone stops what they're doing. And in obedience, they bow down and they worship this golden image. Well, almost everyone... Because look at what we see next. Verse 8. Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amen and amen. One of the more intense chapters in the book Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian and his companion Faithful, they come upon the town Vanity Fair. In the book Vanity Fair, represents the values, beliefs, and desires of this world. Well, while passing through Vanity Fair, Christian and faithful, they refuse to purchase any of the town's goods or to do business there. And this creates quite a commotion, so much so that Christian and faithful are arrested and they are thrown into prison. And after being beaten... Faithful is brought before the town judge where he is then sentenced to death and killed. I have a picture of Faithful on trial. And at the trial, you know what they convicted Faithful with? His crime, please hear me, was that he would not follow and embrace the values and beliefs of Vanity Fair. This was his crime. Well, notice, that's precisely what we have going on here, isn't it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to embrace the values and beliefs of Babylon by bowing down and worshiping the golden image. Instead, what they do is they express in their standing up, complete in total allegiance to the one true and living God. I love verse 12. Look there again. Uh, notice what it says about them. Oh, that it would be said of us. These men, O oh king, pay no attention to you, and they do not serve your gods. As the narrative makes clear, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge golden image. In fact, as we talked about, the text goes out of its way that it's Nebuchadnezzar the one who's doing this, Right? And whenever the music plays, everyone's to stop what they're doing and bow down and worship. But what does the golden image mean? What does it represent? Well, notice, the image is never given a name, is it? It isn't given a name of any of the Babylonian gods. You notice again verse 12. As verse 12 makes clear, the Babylonian gods are lumped into the worship of this image. So what's going on? This is what's going on. The golden image isn't given a specific name because it represents all the various gods of that time as well as the values and beliefs of the culture of Babylon. You see, Babylon was a multi-ethnic city with people from different lands who had their own gods. And Nebuchadnezzar, as king, knew this. So with the golden image, Nebuchadnezzar, listen to me, was not asking that everyone worship his Babylonian gods instead of their own gods. No, Nebuchadnezzar was asking that everyone worship his gods in addition to their gods. This is what Nebuchadnezzar was saying. He's saying, sure, look, in private, you can worship whatever god you choose. But in public, you must bow down to this image. He's saying you can worship your God so long as you don't say your God is the only God. So you see what he was doing? He's privatizing religion. That is, he's saying in private, you can worship whoever, whatever you like. But in public, you must embrace and submit to the values of this culture and if you refuse to bow down to this image you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace and faith the command given by Nebuchadnezzar is not an anomaly in history no it's the same command we hear echoing today several years ago Trevin Watt Wax wrote an article entitled, If Daniel 3 Were Written Today. And in the article, he argues that the golden image of today is homosexuality and transgenderism. And it's really not hard to see how he comes to that conclusion, isn't it? Especially transgenderism. USA Today's Woman of the Year is a biological man. The winner of the woman's NCAA swimming title is a biological man. And our nation's newest Supreme Court justice can't even define or refuses to define what a woman is. Behold your golden statue. And it's not simply that transgenderism is simply promoted today. Like Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, is it not true that all people in all places are told to bow down and you must celebrate it? And if you don't, you will literally be thrown into the fiery furnace. I mean, how many people have lost jobs? How many people have been banned from certain sites or media sites? How many people have experienced discomfort in the workplace because they believe something as simply as men can't have babies? How many greeting cards are at Hallmark that says, happy birthing person day? And part of the reason why I think, and I want to just let you know my pastoral heart here, part of the reason why I think this text is so important for mothers today is because advocates of this destructive, perverse ideology are aggressively targeting children. A friend of mine recently sent this to me. These are some pages taken from a children's book at your local bookstore and in your library. Listen to this page. The book says, Whatever your feelings are, they are real and important. You are the expert in being you. The next page says, Some babies grow into a different gender than the one that grown-ups called them. There are lots of different genders that people grow up into. The next page says, some people are girls, some people are boys, some people are neither, some people are both. Unless you are... living under a rock. It is evident to see that our culture is aggressively trying to disciple our children to bow down and to worship the golden image of transgenderism. Indeed, it's demanding that we all bow the knee. Yet when we look at the pages of Scripture, the Bible stands against the androgyny of our day and insists that contrary to this, that gender is not a feeling one identifies with. No, according to Scripture, gender is biological, and there are only two as the Lord Jesus Christ himself testifies in Matthew nineteen four, male and female, God created them. We don't choose our gender, God does. And there are essential differences between men and women, and this is part of, please hear me, this is part of God's good design. God in his wisdom made male and female, yet in our rebellion, We are saying, God, you made me this way. No. I'm going to be whoever I want to be, even down to the DNA and the chromosomes in my body. And the question before us, I think, is God's people that we not only love these people and point them to Christ, but the question is, as God's people, in allegiance to Jesus, will we stand up for Christ and his word on these matters? Over a half century ago, a Presbyterian minister named Donald Gray Barnhouse, he asked this question. He said this, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? And here's what he speculated. Barnhouse speculated that if Saint took over a city, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. The pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Barnhouse argues that is something that Satan would love to see. And I think there's some truth to that. But faith, you know what else the devil would love to see? He'd love to see that Christians think there's no difference between a clean and tidy but Christless city and a culture who celebrates gay pride parades, drag queen story hour, and transgenderism. Please hear me, there's a difference. While both need to be saved by Christ, one culture reflects their created order and God's good design of marriage and family, while the other one is an act of rebellion against it. This is why... Please hear me. This is why when my older Christian brothers and sisters lament over the condition of America, I get it. I do. They're mourning the fact that our culture is moving further and further away from the created order and instead celebrating moral perversion and disorder. Don't misunderstand me. Both need to be saved by Christ. Both need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Steve talked about, to transfer their hearts, transform their hearts. However, regenerate or not, there is a rightness and a goodness when societies walk in step with God's creative design. That's why it's good and right to push back against drag queen story hour and a homosexual agenda that's infiltrating our culture. Such things go against God's good created order. And as God's people, please hear me, we know this. And you know what? According to Romans chapter 1, our lost world knows it too. Yet they choose to suppress it. So Christian mom, indeed Christians everywhere, follow the example of your ancient brothers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and refuse to bow to the golden image of today. Stand for Christ in his good, life-giving word. You know, we're talking about speaking the truth in love. If we believe God's word is good, that his design is the best for us, then even if it's uncomfortable, even if we know they're going to push back against us, in love we would say, there is a better way, friend. It's the way of Christ and His design for you in His Word. And I want to call us all to express our allegiance to Christ, to not be afraid to say, I stand with Jesus of Nazareth and what He says about these things to not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed. And can I ask, have you ever expressed your allegiance to Jesus on these matters? This is hard. So how can we do that? Well, how were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego able to do it? How were they able to resist and to stand Well, you know why? It's because of their faith. And this is the second thing. It's because they esteemed God supremely. Look at this next passage. Verses 13 through 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? They answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Amen. Stitch that on a pillow and put it on your bed. What (laughs) awesome words. Uh, As some of you may know, uh, Stephanie's brothers, who we actually got a chance to see at the wedding this past weekend, her brothers own a business that deal with branding and marketing. So their job is to help companies identify and then communicate their core values. This is to say their job is to capture and express the essence of a company. Well, if we were to cite a story that captures the essence of the Christian faith, this passage would be it. In this text, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego illustrate what is the trademark of the Christian faith. And you know what that is, friend? The trademark of the Christian faith is that they love and serve God For God, not for what He can do for them. Look again at verses 16 and 18. Here we see one of the most beautiful, powerful declarations in all of Scripture. They make three great declarations. First, they believe God can save them. They really do. They believe He has the power to save. Second, they believe God will deliver them if He so chooses. And then third, this is the third declaration, and even if he doesn't rescue them, they are not going to bow down. In other words, they're saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar and everybody in the court, we love God for himself, not just what he can give us. So live or die, we are going to worship and serve only our God. You see, friend, God was not a means to an end for them. He was an end in and of Himself. And can I ask, Christian, is that how you view God? Is God satisfying in and of Himself? Or do you view God as a means to get what you really, really want in life? You know, the best way to answer that is probably by looking at how you respond to trials. Do you get angry with God when things don't go the way you want them to go? Do you feel God owes you the life you want because you've been a good Christian? Friend, if you're angry because God hasn't given you the life you wanted, then it might very well be that God has been a means for you rather than an end an, in and of himself. The trademark of faith is that we love God for God. We, we esteem him supremely. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego realized that if they had God, they had Everything. And faith, when you you have that, when you esteem God supremely, you can stand up to anyone or anything. When you realize, if I have God, I have it all. But then finally, if you're going to stand firm, the last thing I want to direct your attention to is you need to embrace the cost. Look at how this chapter ends. So, I mean... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they value God supremely, they, they express their allegiance to God, they refuse to bow down, they, and they refuse, they refuse to bow down, and they willingly embrace the cost. you see this? They willingly embrace being thrown into a burning, fiery furnace for God. He means that much to them. And notice what happens next and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered, and he said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, (coughs) servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies Rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Consider, consider the, the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar there. Look again at, at that last verse 28. He said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then what did he say to it? Who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship. Any God except their own God. Excuse me. Embrace the cost. This passage illustrates in story form what the Bible affirms, the rest of the Bible, about suffering. Notice in the passage I just read, Nebuchadnezzar is white hot with anger because they refuse to bow down to the golden image. In fact, he's so angry, he wants the furnace as hot as his anger. So he orders his servants to heat the furnace up how many more times than normally is? Seven. In fact, he orders the furnace so hot that the men who cast Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, they die. Now, notice the irony here that the author is trying to communicate. Those who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's commands died. Those who refused and were condemned to death emerged alive. So Nebuchadnezzar orders them to be thrown into the fire, yet when he looks in the fire, he sees two shocking things. First, he sees they're unharmed by the fire. They're simply, they're like walking around. And I, it's kind of fun to let your imagination go there, isn't there? Okay? You know, what does it look like for for Nebuchadnezzar? And what are they doing? I know, are they playing pot, you know, Rock, paper, scissors, are they, what are they talking about? They're walking around like nothing's the matter. But then second, what's the second shocking thing he sees? He sees not three, but how many? Four. And he says the fourth looks like, quote, a son of the gods. And they're saved and rescued. And I want to just draw out here a couple of truths about suffering as it relates to embracing the cost. And here's the first thing that this passage teaches through story form, and that's this, friend, please hear me, Christian, the first thing is you will suffer. You will. It is unavoidable. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered for standing for their faith. Jesus and his apostles promised us the very same thing, that we will experience suffering and trials as believers. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the what kind of trial? Fiery trial. When it compounds you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Christian, it is not strange for you to suffer. It is not strange for you to go through trials, nor is it strange for you to receive opposition and pushback for standing for Christ. What is strange is, for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a life free from suffering. That's strange. In his book, Walking with God with Suffering, Tim Keller makes the point that of all the people on planet Earth, Americans struggle with suffering the most. And you know why? Because they don't expect it. We in the States tend to believe that if you live a good life, you will be free from suffering. But it's not what the Bible teaches. Look, Jesus lived the perfect life, and his life was marked with suffering. How can we expect any different? So number one, you will suffer. But then second, suffering relates to your character the way fire relates to gold. So it can refine you. Suffering can refine you if you hold on to Jesus. Throughout the Bible, it's not by accident that a fire is used as a metaphor for trials. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. When Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by what? May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does fire do to gold? What does it do? It purifies it. It makes it better and more pure. It's an intense experience, right? But it purifies it. Christian, you want to know your heart? You want to know who you really are? Do you want to be a sympathetic and compassionate person? Do you want to have a profound trust in God? Then you need suffering. None of those things are achievable without trials and difficulties. I wish they were but they really aren't. I mean, there is no real way to know who you are without being tested. There's there's no way to really learn how to trust in God until you're drowning. There's no way to really learn to sympathize with others until you've suffered yourself. Suffering Christian, if you hold on to Jesus, can relate to your character the way fire relates to gold. But then third and most importantly, This passage vividly illustrates that Jesus walks with you in the furnace. Isaiah 43, 2 states this, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. He's speaking to his people. God is through the prophet Isaiah. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the what? Fire. You shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said when he looked into the burning furnace. He said, "How many did he see?" For he said, "The fourth looked like a what? Son of a god." More than that, Nebuchadnezzar refers to this fourth person as the angel of the Lord. Now, now look in the Bible. There are angels, and then there's the angel of the Lord. And whenever we see the whenever we see the angel of the Lord, he just doesn't say this is what God says or. This is what God does. No, He speaks and acts as if He is God. This is, who is, this is who is in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is God in visible form. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. Jesus walks with them in the furnace, and this is what we see throughout the pages of Scripture. Think of John six. The disciples are in the boat. The storm comes upon him. In John 6, does Jesus calm the storm? No. He gets in the boat with them. Does the angel deliver them out of the fiery furnace? He gets in the furnace with them. Now here's the question. How can you truly know and experience the comforting and sustaining presence of Jesus in your suffering? And the answer is this, friend. You will feel Jesus Christ walking with you through the furnace to the degree you know that Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you. Friend, you need to know that Nebuchadnezzar is not the only king who condemns to the fire those who do not bow the knee to him. Our God rightfully demands wholehearted devotion to those He has created. And sadly, we all have chosen to bow the knee to the images of this world rather than to God. We have not loved God like we ought. I know I haven't. We have not served Him like we ought. Therefore, God is correct and just to say that we rightfully deserve the fiery furnace of hell. Yet instead of casting us all into hell, what has God done for his people, friend? On the cross, God took all our fiery judgment and he laid it on his own son, Jesus. Amen? And unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jesus went through his own personal furnace completely alone. There was no companion to share his burden. There was no angel sent to relieve him of his agony as he hung there on the cross, bearing the full weight in punishment we are owed for our sins. No, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price of hell so that all who believe in him would pass through the threatening fire of God's judgment and come through, unburred, and emerge safely on the other side. And what is more is that by faith, Jesus' perfect faithfulness is credited to my account as if it were my own, a faithfulness that far exceeds that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And faith, to the degree that you remember that, you will feel Jesus walking with you in your smaller, cooler furnace. You see, when you remember this, you won't misinterpret your suffering to mean that Jesus doesn't love you because on the cross, God demonstrated just how much He loves you through His sacrifice and resurrection. No, you will instead see this trial as meant to make you more like Jesus. It's meant to turn you into pure gold. And can I just ask, friend, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Because it would be wrong of me to withhold from you the truth, the reality that there is a fiery furnace we all are destined to. Because of our sin, as I just expressed, we all are destined to the fiery furnace of hell. But praise be to God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death we are owed for our sins and then raised from the dead three days later. And salvation, forgiveness of sins, a perfect righteousness, the hope of eternal life, all that is offered to you simply by faith. Have you put your trust in Christ alone? If not, I would encourage you to do so today. Faith standing for Christ can mean standing alone. And to close, I was, I was reminded of, this, of the story of Martin Luther. Before the diet of worms in 1521, Martin Luther was asked to recant his writings that disagreed with the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther refused. He said scripture is my highest authority. And then on May 6th, almost to the day, May 6th, 1521, the Roman Catholic Church handed down their verdict. And listen to carefully the last line of the verdict that condemned Martin Luther. They said this, we have labored with him, but he recognizes only the authority of Scripture. In other words, Martin Luther would only obey the Word of God. Oh, that that would be said of us, that we all would be charged guilty of recognizing the only authority, only the authority of Scripture's. So brothers and sisters in Christ, may we stand for Christ, faithfully obeying his word, even in the face of giant golden images. Let's pray.